Well, we come back to John today, the Gospel of John. If you really want to know why John wrote his Gospel, all you've got to do is turn to chapter 20, verse 31. And he tells us, These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing... You may have life in his name. Now the question that remains is, okay, this is John's goal, this is his purpose in writing this gospel. How does he accomplish it? How does he accomplish his purpose? Primarily in two ways. By telling of some signs that Jesus gave and by telling of some discussions Jesus had. That's it. That's basically the Gospel of John. The signs Jesus gave and the discourses in which he engaged. One of the first signs that's noted in the Gospel of John is that that we looked at last week. Um, The wedding at the, at the, uh, the marriage in Cana of Galilee. I'll get it right. The marriage in Cana of Galilee. It was the uh, remarkable story of him turning water into wine. And then the first discourse, or first long discussion Jesus had, is the one before us today. And I want to read it for you. John chapter 3, verses 1 to 15. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. How can someone be born when they're old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb and be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You shouldn't be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You're Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you don't understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify of what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. You know, one of the most remarkable things you see when you read this discourse is the truthfulness of Jesus. You can't miss it. You just get a sense for how truthful he is, how straightforward he is. It's an admirable quality to have in any person, of course, and and obviously an essential one if someone is supposed to be known as the embodiment of truth. What is it that Jesus tells us the truth about? Ever think about that? 
What is it that Jesus tells us the truth about? Simple answer. Everything. Everything. He doesn't misrepresent anything. He doesn't give us half-truths. He's straightforward. He tells us the truth. What truth does he choose to particularly emphasize here? Well, two main points this morning. Jesus tells us the truth about how to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I'm very mindful that this is a threadbare passage of Scripture for many people. You've read it, you've read it, you've read it, you've heard sermons on it. It's, you say, oh no, here we're going to go look at this again. Well, let's pray. This would be a good way for you to pray, especially if you've been a believer for a long time. Let's pray that God would help us see this from our pre-conversion days and discover anew what it's all about. Jesus tells us the truth about how to enter the kingdom of God. And the bottom line is you must be born again or born from above. Three times for emphasis. Now, if you want to emphasize something, what do you do? You repeat it, right? I told you not to do that. I'm going to tell you again not to do that. I'm going to tell you one more time not to do that, right? That's what we do with our kids. Jesus emphasizes this very fact. Look at verse 3. Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of, unless, kingdom of God unless they're born again. Look at verse 5. Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and of spirit. Verse 7. You should not be surprised, duh. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. So he minces no words. He cuts through the niceties. He gets right to what Nicodemus presumably wanted or needed to know. And he tells him how to enter the kingdom of God. Now, some review on the kingdom of God. We talked about this fairly recently. The kingdom is something that's both here and yet still on the way. We're talking about the reign of Jesus Christ. Notice we refer to his reign and not his realm. What is his realm? When you talk about the realm of a kingdom, you're talking about the dimensions of it, the, the, the borders of it. For Jesus' kingdom, there is no realm because there are no borders. He is king of the universe. He's king over everything. So it's proper to talk not so much about his realm, but to talk about his reign. And then also we should explain this idea of eternal life. And here again, this is threadbare. I remember I have shared this so many times with you. So pretend like you had never heard it before, okay? But there are two things, especially in the Gospel of John, that are true when the term eternal life is used. When John talks about eternal life, he not only talks about quantity of life, a life that never ends, he also talks about quality of life. And this is very important. Because life doesn't happen for the believer when they check out of, of life here. Life happens for the believer when they begin to live, when they come to faith in Christ. And that has to do with quality of life. Let me quote Leon Morris. The important thing about eternal life is not its quantity, but its quality. Eternal life is life in Christ, that, which, that life which removes a man or a woman from the merely earthly. So when a person enters the kingdom of God or inherits eternal life, he comes under the reign of Christ. The quality of his life changes due to the Holy Spirit coming into his life, as Christ said he would. Now what Jesus refers to 
is a divine remaking. We're left guessing a little bit as to Nicodemus' motivation behind the statement in verse 4. Let's read it. How can someone be born when they're, they're old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. What's going on with Nicodemus here? Maybe there's a little hurt pride. That seems to be the thought of some commentators. I mean, Nicodemus' reasoning is, okay, it's, it's all right to talk about proselytes coming into Judaism like newborns. That was done. We do that all the time. But I'm already a Jew. I'm already in the family. Or maybe it's this. Maybe Nicodemus is caught up with the wonder and intrigue from what Jesus had said to him that prompted him to respond like this. And I think that's more likely, the one of the two. Jesus hinted at a fresh beginning, a very, very promising prospect. Then Jesus enlarges on the subject. Notice verse 5 and 6. Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. Now, for some people, they've struggled with this a lot, and I did too to a certain degree. We're left wondering, what does he really mean by this phrase, born of water? What does it have to do with? Well, let me tell you three major uh, suggestions, and I'll tell you, well, you won't have to guess which one I agree with. Um, Some say this has to do, this is a reference to Christian baptism. And the argument for that, proponents say that baptism would have been a natural association for those who had read John's gospel. The argument against this rationale, however, is that the allusion here, if it were to Christian baptism, would have meant nothing to Nicodemus. Christian baptism per se did not exist as a Christian ordinance yet. So personally, I don't think this, I think this is conjecture. I don't think it holds water, pardon the pun. This is not a reference to water baptism. Some say, well, maybe it's a reference to purification because the Jews were all about ceremony and purification. In fact, do you remember in last week's text that we read, Jesus turned the water into wine. Where did he get the water? There were six crocks or clay jugs sitting on the premises, full of water that, was, that were turned into wine. That water was there for ceremonial purposes, purification purposes. So if that's the case, this would be a backward look at John the Baptist's baptism as an indication of repentance. And it dealt with things like purification. If this is it, Jesus is telling Nicodemus that he should participate in John the Baptist's baptism, indicating repentance, and be born of the Spirit. That, too, just doesn't seem to wash. Pardon the pun again. It just doesn't seem to wash. Why would he refer him back to John's baptism when that everything else is looking forward? Here's what I think it has to do with. I think it has to do with natural life and perhaps even procreation. The water here is a cl- seems to be could be a clear reference to the amniotic fluid, that nice little shock absorber that keeps the baby safe until the baby's delivered from the mother's womb during pregnancy. And there are some who go so far as to say this: it could even the, the reference to water could even be a reference to semen, because in ancient sources 
Terms are used for semen like water, rain, dew, even the word drop, like a water drop. So the allusion here would be to natural birth. That seems to fit best with what we find in verse 6. Flesh gives birth to flesh, natural birth. But the spirit gives birth to spirit. Nicodemus knew what Jesus meant by, by what he said, even if we have to speculate. Both we and Nicodemus have to know that the real thrust here is what the Spirit does. That's really the thing that we do not want to drop, we do not want to miss. Notice the reference again. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, gives birth to Spirit. Salvation is a result of a repentant human spirit and what the Holy Spirit does. Salvation is a result of having life, having been born of water, physical life, and what the Holy Spirit does. It is in any case a work of the Spirit, a spiritual remaking. This is so very important for us to catch. It should be no surprise that being born again is a necessity. Look at verse 7. You should not be surprised at my saying, Jesus says, you must be born again. This is a necessity not only for Nicodemus, but for everyone. Notice the word you, second time it's used. You must be born again. It's a plural pronoun. To whom is he referencing? Not only Nicodemus, but all who are associated with him. Jump back up to verse 1, or verse 2. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God. Who is the we? all who were associated with Nicodemus. As long as we're looking at words, look at the word must in that same verse. You must be born again. This indicates a need which is absolute. If we want to enter into the kingdom of God and receive eternal life, we must be born again. Jesus is not afraid of being emphatic. He's not afraid of putting it right on the line. In fact, John is quick to pick up on other places where Jesus uses the word must. As long as it is day, I must do the work of him who sent me. And you'll find other references using that word as well. The result of entering into the kingdom may seem inexplainable, but it is effective. Look at verse 8. The wind blows where it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from. Or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Now, it could be, this is an unexplainable thing like the wind, this thing of being born again. It, and it could be that as Jesus was speaking, actually a gust of wind triggered him to use it, this as an analogy. It would, it was a, it's a good analogy. Ever try to explain the wind? Let me give it to you in a different way. Have you ever tried to explain why you are different? to someone because of your transformation through Christ? Now, catch what I'm saying. I'm not asking if you can explain that you are different. I'm asking if you, you can explain why. What makes the difference? Why are you different? It's difficult to explain how the Spirit so remarkably changes the life. But it is evident that He does. I had some great fun this week. I got on the Internet and I started looking for Christian testimonies. You know there are a lot of sites where you can get Christian testimonies on the internet. 
And it's so edifying to read them. Now, if I were to read these word for word, for word we'd be here a long day, so I'm going to have to make short work of it. But here's Michael's personal testimony. I learned the, at an early age, as an only child in Haverhill, Massachusetts, that drinking and fighting was a normal way of life. Shortly after graduating from high school, I joined the Navy. Now, this is a tough guy. If I were to read all of his account to you, you would see what I mean. He was a fighter. He was a brawler. He was a drinker. He was a renegade. He joined the Navy. Upon reporting on board my first ship, I felt a great sense of emptiness. I fell in with the wrong crowd, which is what I've been doing all my life. And I tried to fill the great void in my heart. My life spiraled out of control with excessive drinking. I took various drugs, including hallucinogenic drugs. A couple of engineers I worked with, named Jim and Steve, were making many of us on ship uncomfortable with their Bible talk. I persecuted these Jesus freaks with more vigor than anyone else on the ship, calling them names and staring them down at every opportunity. I had become a modern-day Saul of Tarsus. One day, Steve asked if I would like to have his Gideon New Testament. I shrugged and took it. While reading in my new book, I used the helps in the front of the Gideon New Testament that said things like, what to read when you're depressed, what to read when you're discouraged, what to read when you're defeated. And I felt all of these emotions and thought, why didn't someone tell me about these things before? The words were like fireworks going off as I read this miraculous book, soaking it up like a sponge. Amazingly, I was receiving answers to all my problems, and I didn't even know it. Skip ahead a little bit. I began desiring to quit drinking, smoking, and all the other sinful habits I was hooked to, but I didn't yet have sufficient willpower to overcome them. I repeatedly tried to stop. You can tell that God had gotten this guy's attention. I repeatedly tried to stop, only falling back into this torturous rut. I began telling my friends I'd rather stay on the ship than go out partying. Actually, I was finding time alone to read my little book of help, this Gideon New Testament. One night, while lying in my bunk, I could hear Jim and Steve nearby talking about sinners going to hell or something. I was terribly convicted in my heart and became extremely disturbed. I uh, flung my bunk curtain open and snapped, Why don't you guys be quiet? People are trying to sleep. It's 2 o'clock in the morning. Good night anyway. What are you doing? To which they responded, We'll keep it down, Petty Officer Butler. As they continued to share God's word, now in a whisper, catch this, I caught myself bending my ear to hear what they were saying. Why didn't he just open the curtain and say, speak loudly, will you? I told myself, look at you. You know you want what they have. They're the only ones in the entire sh- on the entire ship who are happy all the time, no matter what the circumstances. Moments later, I sincerely prayed for the first time in my life. God, if you're real, do to me what you've done to them. The peace of God overwhelmed me as I sensed something like oil flow from my head down to my feet, making me feel clean, white as snow, for the first time in my life. And I began to weep. 
This was my moment. When God opened my eyes and the mystery and the mystery of Christ, the hope of glory was revealed to me. As it is written in the word, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Well, in the morning, I told Jim and Steve what happened. They went ballistic. Hallelujah, you've been saved, they said. My closest partying comrades weren't as enthusiastic. They said, surely you overdosed on drugs. You need to get to a ship's doctor right away. No, I found Jesus. He's what, I, what I've been looking for my whole life. My old buddy said, no, nah, you've become one of them. They tried to persuade me to go back out drinking with them, saying I was just going through a phase and that I'd get over it sooner or later anyway. You know, that's the same thing that happened to me. But as it is written, I determined to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Steve would tell you, if you were to ask him, I was the least likely sailor to get saved on our ship. And he fervently prayed for me until it happened. My conversion was something that could, go, could not go unnoticed. And there was a great revival on the USS Snelling, Fort Snelling, as many came to accept Jesus as their personal savior. I testified to everyone on the ship, anywhere, anytime. It was like fire shut up in my bones. I feared no one, to God be the glory. But listen to this. Soon I joined a church. I was baptized and later became a Bible teacher and a prayer leader. I shared Jesus with my mom and she got saved. I ended up doing a combined 22 years in the Navy and Navy Reserve I have a wonderful wife of 28 years. Our three children and six grandchildren are rooted in the truth. Jim and Steve are to this day my brothers I never had growing up. More than 30 years later, I am a living example of the promise found in Isaiah 55:11. So shall my word be that goes forth out of my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing there whereto I sent it. I wouldn't trade my life now for anything, and thank God for every situation I went through to get to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. It is my unworthy privilege to work with the Gideons, giving back to God through such a wonderful organization of dedicated men and women. Isn't that an incredible story? Listen, this is what Jesus is talking about. This is what happens when the Spirit calls and we respond. The Spirit comes in. And we are changed. Let me share another one. Oh, we could, I could go on all morning. I got a bunch of these. A few years ago, I was in college. And I was approached by two men from Campus Crusade for Christ. They asked a man studying nearby me if they could sit with him and talk about spiritual things. And he declined. So I motioned for them to come over to my table and speak with me. For the first time, I heard the message of my sin and the need for Christ's forgiveness. Afterward, I agreed to stay in contact with these guys. On occasion, I brought my questions to them about the Bible. I then read from an uncommitted standpoint. I went away for the summer. I worked at Yosemite National Park in one of the shops in the valley. But when I returned to college, I hooked up with these three guys from Campus Crusade and told them I was coming close to receiving Christ. To make a long story short, we stayed up late one night talking about the true nature of faith. I shared with them my lingering hesitancy over taking the, the final faith step toward Jesus. Even so, God won me over that night 
The word that did it for me, the words that did it for me are found in Ephesians chapter 2. It's a passage about being dead in one's trespasses and sins. It hit me hard to think that I was a dead soul to God without Jesus. I wanted to fix the problem. I prayed to receive Christ. It was a, a confused and meandering prayer. It was the best I could do for, with all I knew about him at the time. But essentially I told God that I wanted Christ to take charge of my life. I went to bed that evening doubting my decision. I woke up the next morning sensing something had changed. I felt different. Life felt different. Everything had a different tint to it. God had been born into my life, or I had been born into his kingdom, or both. I don't know how to explain it, but it happened. The Bible says that the Lord is the God who justifies the wicked. What a fabulous truth to rest a guilty conscience under. God knew what he was getting into with all of us. He's been so patient with the worst parts of me. I just want to press on in my feeble love for him, forgetting what lies behind until faith becomes sight. Jesus said, you must be born again. How, how does it happen? Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. I remember in my own life, and you've heard this before, so please forgive me for being repetitious. But this is real. I remember in my own life some immediate changes I noticed after I came to faith in Christ. It proved to me that something was going on. It was more than just mind over matter to me. I all of a sudden had love and pity for my father, whereas I had resentment and hatred. That was a quick change. One of the biggest for me was that I wanted to talk about God. Whereas before, it was an aversion to me. I felt like foreign words were coming out of my lips to use the term Jesus or God or Spirit or whatever, any of those religious terms. And I didn't use them very complimentary in my B.C. days either. But all of a sudden, I wanted to talk about God, and it was almost immediate. Another thing, I loved meeting people who knew Christ. Whereas before, I was shied away from them. Now all of a sudden, I wanted to meet them. I wanted to get acquainted with them. I wanted to hear their story. I wanted to fellowship with them. I didn't know the term even, but I wanted to. And my speech cleaned up. I don't know that it was habitual that I was a swearing teenager, but I was trying to fit in with all the guys, so I swore a lot. And all of a sudden, I didn't want to talk that way anymore. God took it away. It's amazing what happens when the Spirit draws us to Christ? Difficult to explain how the Spirit so remarkably changes a life, but He does. Jesus not only tells us the truth about how to enter the kingdom, He also tells us more. He tells us the truth about why we should believe what He says about entering the kingdom. That is about being born again. And there are four reasons we find in this text why we should believe what Jesus says. So we're going to cover them quickly. We should believe what he says about being born again because he says it. Not because we know how what he says can happen, or even because it sounds believable. But he says it, and we don't need to know how. Look at a couple of things. Look at the power and the ability of God 
that goes beyond even the understanding of the learned. Look at verse 9. How can this be, Nicodemus said. Now, Nicodemus was a learned man. How can this be? To which Jesus responds, You're Israel's teacher, and you don't understand these things? It's difficult to know, in fact, how God places a spirit within us to change us, but the fact of the matter is, he does. And I want you to know, friend, and please catch this. If you don't catch anything else this morning, catch this. Salvation is not reformation. Salvation is transformation. The Spirit is involved, or baby, we ain't saved. The Spirit draws us to Him, or we're just playing a game. There were two um, caterpillars one day sitting on a branch of a tree, and a beautiful butterfly flew over their heads. One caterpillar turned to the other one and says, You wouldn't get me up in one of those things in a million years. I got news for you, caterpillar. You're going to be transformed. Bullfrogs and butterflies, they've both been born again. Remember the song? That's all I'm going to sing. It's more than a metamorphosis. It's a spiritual metamorphosis. The spirit comes in and our life changes. Our inability to know how God does something should not cause us to preclude or deny his ability to do it. I don't know how electricity works, but I know it does. I've stuck my finger in enough life sockets to find out. It's the same with God. Somebody put it on a bumper sticker one time. Jesus said it. I believe it. That settles it. The second reason why we should believe what he says is this. It is something of which Jesus himself bears witness. I, I view these four things, by the way, that I'm sharing with you right now as a tightly woven piece of rope four-stranded rope. It's hard to separate all these things. They're, they're interrelated. Jesus bears witness. The word bearing witness suggests Jesus is giving facts, not just opinion. He's dealing with objective truth, not just subjective ideas. Look at verse 11. Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify of what we've seen, then he adds all the, uh, unfortunately, he has to add this, but still you people do not accept our testimony. Notice the word we, personal, pronoun, plural, suggests it's not a truth shared only by Jesus, but certainly verified by Jesus. But the question is, who are the we? Who's he referring to? Could be one of several or all of them. He could be referring to the prophets. They certainly prophetically announced Jesus' coming and what Messiah would do. Could be John the Baptist. Could be Jesus' disciples themselves. Or as I say, all of the above. In spite of it all, some unfortunately choose not to believe. But that doesn't mean Jesus didn't do his job. The third reason we should believe that what he says about being born again is because Jesus can speak authoritatively about heavenly things. Look at verse 12. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? Now if this is the case, he ought to be believed when he speaks about earthly things, right? Let, let me paraphrase this verse 12 for you. I think that's the quickest way to deal with it. Jesus is basically saying, I have the capability to tell you about heavenly things, <clears throat> But you aren't even buying what I'm telling you about earthly things, things which happen in this earthly sphere. 
He can speak about heavenly things because he himself is heavenly. Duh. Get it? Look at verse 13. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. So he can speak representatively of each. Now you might know John would pick up on this. John the Beloved. He is constantly at pains to show us how Jesus is divine. Others dreamed of peering into heaven. Read uh, Isaiah 14 and you'll see the son of the morning, Lucifer, dreamed of getting to heaven. He said, I will ascend into heaven. But he couldn't do it. It was only a boast, only an ambition. Not so, however, with Jesus. He's been there. He even brought the realities of heaven to earth. A couple of weeks ago we referenced John chapter 1, verse 51. Very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Remember the story of Jacob's ladder, this marvelous staircase that bridges the gap between heaven and earth. Jesus is our uplink, if you will, to the realities of heaven. That being the case, he is believable whether the subject be heavenly or earthly things. And then lastly... We should believe what he says about being born again because his death would ensure our entrance into the kingdom of God. Verse 14 and 15. Anyone whose life and death are that effective is worth being believed. His death, in order to ensure our life, was a must. There's another one of these musts. It's imperative. Look at verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness... So the Son of Man must be lifted up. Remember the story of lifting up the snake in the wilderness? All you had to do is look at the snake and you'd be spared. All you've got to do is look to Jesus and you can be spared. Belief in what he said he would do would result in eternal life. Verse 15, everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Simple, simple story been the means of millions coming to faith in Christ. This discourse Jesus had and John the Beloved recorded and put in his gospel. I want to tell you one more story. Marty Holman was a professor of Japanese studies at the University of Missouri. And he says this, Since my late teens, I've been an active member of a religious tradition that emphasized salvation by works and eternal progression. I don't know what he means by that. But he says it. I was always striving to follow every rule. I kept recommitting myself to doing everything right and doing everything. I would dismiss misgiving and doubts and think, no, no, I just have to grit my teeth and work harder. Part of my exercise regime involved playing racquetball with one of my Japanese language students, Nathan Salmon. He would, we would play five or six days a week, and usually we would have lunch. I considered myself a Christian, and I knew Nathan was a Christian, but he spoke with, with Jesus, uh, about Jesus in ways and with an understanding that I didn't have. I decided to look at Scripture. I was reading in John chapter 6, where the masses turned away from Jesus, and he asked his disciples, are you going to turn away too? And Peter says, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. Although I had prayed many times, 
I never prayed the way Christians talked about praying. So this day I knelt down and said to God, I'm going to quit trying. I give up. I surrender my deluded notions that I, have, that I can save myself and that I can work my way into your grace. Listen. I got up off my knees after praying and said, the world changed. But the world had not changed. I had changed. In a moment, I had changed. I had reason to live. And what he says now makes me believe that this guy lived part of his life in depression. I changed spiritually, mentally, and physically. Here it is. Before, if I was able, I would sleep in until noon. It just sounds like life was bearing down in the sky time and time again. After I trusted in Christ, I now get up because there's a whole day before me and I want to live it. Something happened in his life. I'm not suggesting if you want to sleep in, you're not a Christian. What I am suggesting is when Jesus comes in, when the Spirit calls and we respond to him, and we are born again of the Spirit of God, something happens in our lives. Are you there? Has it happened for you? Or have you come to church out of tradition because the family wanted me to, and I just, one of those things i got to do. It's not about going to church. It's about saying yes to Jesus Christ and allowing the Spirit to do His work coming into our life. I wrote an aim for today's message. I often do this. I don't often share it with you. I just preach it. But there's a couple of things that I would hope that we would know as a result of our time together today. A couple of things I hope we would experience or feel and a couple of things I hope we will do. And I want to share them with you. First of all, I hope that we know as a result of being together today and looking at John chapter 3, what it takes to enter God's kingdom and what that means. I hope that we'll know that Jesus is divine of heavenly origin and what he says ought to be heeded. I also hope we'll experience something. One of the things I hope we'll experience is gratitude for Jesus telling us exactly what it takes to enter the kingdom of God. I hope it will engender confidence in the counsel of Jesus due to his origin. This is not just a man speaking. This is a man speaking who was totally also God. And behaviorally, I hope we'll respond to the need to be born again. I hope we'll respond to the person of Christ by living according to his teaching as it touches all matters. Moral matters, ethical matters, personal dilemmas, whatever it might touch. I trust that we'll follow Jesus. That's my goal for today in the message. What is yours? Did you come for anything this morning or did you just come out of habit? Do you know Jesus or do you want to know him? Let's pray. You're a mighty Savior, Lord. It seems so absolutely, sublimely ridiculous that a man as I could stand and speak of such lofty things and know that I'm speaking truth. 
But it's not my truth. It's your truth. It's not just truth found on a page. It's truth found in a person. You said you should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. I pray for any and all who are uncertain, or maybe they know for certain, that they've not been born of the Spirit. They've not been born again. I pray, Lord, that you would call those whom you would call today to come to you. And they'll know you're calling because you'll place a desire in their heart to respond. Now, friend, let me talk to you while your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed. If in your heart you're responding to Christ right now, you've never done it before, but you want him as your Lord and your Savior, all you've got to do is tell him that. It's so very simple. Tell him that. I want you as my Lord and Savior. Just tell him in the privacy of your own heart. You don't have to say it out loud. I want you as my Lord and Savior. If you've prayed that prayer, the Spirit will give witness of His presence in your life. God has called you. You've responded. What I'd like to ask you to do is to circle your name on your connection card because we would like to get together with you and help you take some first steps in being assured that what you've done is right and what you can expect in the future. And Lord, we pray for the rest who are within the hearing of this message. You'd help us all to take stock of how closely we're following, how fervently we're following. Help us to remember the day, those who, there's so many here who have responded to you like this in the past. Help us to remember the day when we gave our lives to Jesus. Bring it back to us. Make it be fresh. For some, if we've left our first love, help us to return. We are dependent upon the work and the person of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and we gladly yield to you today and pray, O oh God, that you'd draw us close to you and help us to live fervently for you. We pray this in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen.